following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As to the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we, are, we are in the middle of a series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and the Apostles' Creed is a concise statement of faith that's been used for centuries and centuries. It's something that all Christians throughout space and time say, this is what we believe, this is what orthodoxy is. And so we have been going through this uh, to, to really understand what we mean when we say, I believe. Um, and, and so we've been unpacking each line, and as we do so, I hope we've been providing some th- theological clarity, right, by, by saying this is actually what we mean when we say, the Apostles' Creed, this is the significance, this is the theology, this is the doctrine, and at the same time, while we provide theological clarity, that we are also realizing the personal relevance of these things. Now, at this point in the Apostles' Creed, we've dealt with matters of the faith, faith which have been in the past, things that we can say, this has been done, that God created, that Jesus was conceived, that he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he ascended, he, uh, and now we come to the point where we're not speaking of past tense, but we are talking now of the future tense. See, Christianity, though it has historical roots, much of what Christians believe is still to come. In this sense, Christianity is a faith that doesn't just look backward, but one, uh, it's a faith that looks forward. It's a forward-facing faith. And in the Apostles' Creed, the line we're looking at today is that he will come again. Future tense, that Jesus will return. Now, the promise of Jesus' second coming appears immediately after Jesus ascends into heaven. Right? If you remember Steve unpacking that last week in uh, Acts chapter one, Jesus ascends into the clouds. The disciples are staring up and looking, wondering what's going on, and an angel appears and say, why are you looking up? Now, Jesus has ascended, he's gone on, but he will return in the same way in which he's come. Now this isn't a small detail about, the faith, about Christian faith, the fact that Jesus is not, will come again. It's not a small piece of the faith. In fact, if you look throughout Scripture, it's quite a big deal because for every one reference there is for Jesus' first coming when he came as a, a little baby, 
There are eight references to his second coming. Do you realize that? Now the reason for this is because the hope that Christians have isn't exclusively in what's happened. The hope that Christians have is in what will come about and we have assurance of what will be, what the future looks like because Jesus has already come. This is why 1 Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, set your hope fully, your full hope, set it on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying the hope that you have, the entire weight of it, should be set on the reality that Jesus is coming again. In the words of Frank Sinatra, the best is yet to come. That's where the hope is. Now, the question is, why, why does Jesus need to come back? Why would Jesus need to come back? Did he leave some things off his to-do list? Did he need to redo some of the things that he accomplished initially in his first coming? No. What Scripture tells us is Jesus actually has new business to tend to. That his first coming, the order of business was to save, to seek and to save the lost. For God so loved the world, right? Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's what John 3.17 tells us, that he came in humbly, he came in lowly as a servant. But this time, in his second coming, he returns, he rends the heavens in his glory, and he appears as a judge. He is here in his second coming to execute the justice that God has appointed him to execute as the just judge. And we see this when we're reading through Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Peter's preaching a gospel message to the Gentiles, and he says, look, look, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. This is why the Apostles' Creed can assert in this concise statement that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, when we talk about judgment or Jesus coming back as a judge, a lot of times Christians feel like we have to be really apologetic about this language, like we've got to tiptoe around this subject because it, it's sort of offensive if you think about it. Right? It feels too heavy-handed. It might be intimidating to think of Jesus as this judge and as we'll see how he separates people. Like there's one camp that he calls the sheep that are received as people. There's another camp that are the goats that are exiled, that are cast away. And this idea of talking about judgment, the fact that Jesus comes to sort the sheep and the goat, it it seems like it's fear-mongering. In a way, it seems like it might be bad news. And out of fear of being lumped together with some of the fire and brimstone churches that are always preaching judgment, 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 like Westboro Baptist Church, a lot of churches shy away from even talking about it. Like, we don't want to be one of those churches. We, we don't want to be known for this fire and brimstone. And because of that, one of the trends that we've seen as culture progresses in, in a more... Um, 
in a, in a way that veers away from God's word, we realize that some churches and Christians follow suit, right? They, they, they do the same thing. They refuse to talk about judgment and they insist that it's all grace. It's all grace. Every, everything is grace. We don't need to talk about judgment because it's all grace. But here's the deal. When you do that, when you separate grace from judgment, you create a false dichotomy that actually nullifies the gospel of its good news. That if it's all grace and there's no judgment, then the gospel actually ceases to be good news because if there's no judgment, that means that God is not righteous. A righteous God cannot tolerate injustice. And if there's no righteousness, then there's no gospel. See, we're told in Romans 1.17 that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, actually reveals God's righteousness. And what we see in the gospel is that there is both the reality of grace and judgment. Both things come together. And this is why Peter talks about this in the two very first sermons that he preaches, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. It's included. It's, it's an essential piece of the gospel message. And so today, we're gonna look at it. We're gonna look at judgment. Why is judgment so important? Now, I realize that if I were to put the sermon title about some, something about God's judgment, if we had a marquee up there, not very many people would come in, right? That's not a very attractive sermon title. That's very compelling in that sense. But the idea of judgment, and this is the idea of judgment is easily vilified. We have a lot of misconceptions about judgment, which is too bad, because as we understand judgment from a biblical perspective, as we understand judgment in the way that God speaks to us about it, it actually is very good news. And so we're gonna unpack the mechanics of judgment and the good news of judgment. Now listen, Jesus, in his ministry, in his first coming, he spoke often of his second coming through the gospel accounts. And one of the places that's most saturated with this language or this discourse about his return is in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. And so I want to take us to Matthew's gospel. Um, in Matthew 25, if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can flip there, otherwise it'll be up here on the screen, where Jesus, in, in chapter 24, he's been talking about judgment and, and some of the pieces of that, and then here in verse 31 of chapter 25, Jesus starts talking about, it is labeled the final judgment. Let me just read to you the first couple of verses here. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now what this is telling us is that there is in fact a day of reckoning. There is what scripture calls the day of the Lord. Throughout Old Testament, New Testament, there is a judgment day that's approaching, that there is an end, history will come to an abrupt end, that Jesus will show up and things will change drastically. There is an end to this era. And it's been funny that through the years, people have wasted hours and hours trying to figure out when this day will take place. There, there was a book that was published in the 80s, uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. 
right? I, I feel like the publisher would look back on that and say, man, that was a mistake to invest so much time and resources. There, there's been numerous evangelists and, and radio preachers that have proclaimed that Jesus is coming on a certain day, but what doesn't make sense is that they would think that they would look at the scriptures and be so, so critical, trying to unpack and miss the, the, the verse that says, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even, not even the Son of Man, only the Father knows. First Thessalonians tells us that, that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. And while the arrival of this day, the precise day of judgment is unknown, we do have clarity, we do know what will happen on that day. See, the reason why we can look at judgment and not think, oh, this is scary, is because what happens on judgment day is that Jesus will come and he'll put an end to all of the brokenness that's going on in this world. All of the chaos that we experience in this world will be brought to order. And in that day, we will find the beginning of the happy ending that we all crave, right? We are story-formed people, right? We'll finally get the resolution to the story that we were hoping for. Jesus does a complete overhaul. See, the gospel isn't that Jesus came to earth and and moderately improved how things were, right? He didn't come and, and make things a little bit better than how he appeared. The good news, the hope of Christians is that one day Jesus will come and he'll do a complete overhaul. The order will be brought to the chaos. That sin and evil will be punished and destroyed, forever gone. It will be a memory that all of the overlooked injustice will come to light, right? This is, this is why Christians have a, a hope of judgment because it means that the guys like Hitler and Saddam Hussein and, and guys who have done heinous evil who, who get off the hook easily will have to reckon with what they've done, that they have a judge that they need to answer to. It's the day when all of the brokenness will be mended, where the wrongs are set right, where creation will be restored to his optimal functionality and it will have an incorruptible glory that it will never again be corrupted. See, this is why Christians look forward to the day that Jesus returns. There's so much good awaiting. There's so much anticipation for that day, but part of this means is as Jesus makes all the wrongs right, it, we have this image of Jesus coming to be the judge, that everyone will stand before the throne. In verse 32 of Matthew, we're told that all of the nations will be gathered before him. Revelation 20 gives us this picture that, that the living and the dead, that the God will, Jesus will call out to the seas and to the dead and the graves will give over the dead and they will stand before Jesus and everyone will give an account. And Jesus sits on his throne. He's sitting at his judgment seat. And verse 32 tells us that like a shepherd, he will separate each one. Like a a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And And here's the thing that you can be sure of, that as Jesus sits on his throne, his judgment is always just. See, the judgment of Jesus, this is the thing about our court system today, like, We have judges, we have courts that can get it wrong. 
There are people who have served long sentences wrongly. And there have been people who have gotten off the hook for the wrong that they've done and they haven't had to serve the time. But when Jesus comes and he judges, everything is laid bare. Every thought, every word, every deed, every secret that we keep in the dark will be brought to the light and Jesus will examine it and he will judge justly to the point where we will not even be able to argue or give an excuse for his judgment. And when we see Jesus as the shepherd here, sorting out, this, this is Old Testament language. This takes us back to the Old Testament to give us this illustration. This is a, a metaphor or illustration that had been used throughout the entirety of, of the Bible, actually, this idea of God as a shepherd and God's people as his sheep. All right, we see this in Psalm 23. Uh, I think it's a Ezekiel 34, where God is like a shepherd to his sheep, leading, feeding, protecting. And what we see here is as Jesus is making his judgments between the sheep, which are, it would be a favorable judgment to be considered part of God's flock, to be part of God's people. In verse 32 and 34 of Matthew 25, we see that the sheep receive a favorable verdict. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, the sheep are grafted in. They receive a blessing. What we see on the other side is the goats don't. In verse 41, Jesus says to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, there's a contrast here between what the sheep receive in blessing, acceptance, they have this inheritance to rejoice in, and and those who are on the left, the goats who are pushed away, they're, they're cast away, they're condemned, they're cursed. And what this shows us is that it's one or the other. It's either you're a sheep or you're a goat. There's no hybrid, right? The, if you've been watching The Good Place, the show that's on NBC right now, like there's no middle place. It's you are either a sheep they go, and Jesus is the one who makes this judgment. Now, when people hear this, they, they hear that somebody is in authority, uh, that Jesus is making a judgment, people start to get squirmy. How could Jesus do that? How could Jesus say, get away from me and, and condemn someone to, to anguish, to eternal punishment? We say, how is that just? How can he do that? That seems unfair. But if you have a true framework of justice, if you have a true framework of righteousness, see your problem with Matthew 25 isn't that some are judged as goats. 
That, that shouldn't be shocking to you if you have a biblical framework of justice. The shocking thing is that any at all would be considered to be sheep. That any would be called righteous. Because Romans 5 tells us, and we know this, like you know this deep down in your heart, no one is righteous, no, not one. Right? And if you don't know that yet, then you need to be in a missional community so you can live in community and God can expose that. So how in the world can Jesus make a judgment and say there are some who are placed on the right who are labeled righteous when clearly no one is righteous. Now this might seem suspect to us. Does Jesus know what he's doing? Does does the judge know what he's doing? Is is he right? Now our our inclination when we encounter authority figures is to, to protest their authority in some way and ask what gives you the right? What gives you the power? What gives you the say-so to make such a judgment? And listen, it's not wrong to ask that. In fact, it's maybe a wise thing to ask for credentials and to verify somebody's legitimacy of power because if your na- it's different. If your neighbor comes over to your house and tells you, hey, um, this tree is a safety issue, you need to deal with it, that, that's a little bit, it doesn't carry the same sort of authority and weight that if a city planner shows up at your door and says, hey, this is a, this is a violation, you need to take care of it. There's, there's a credibility, there's, there's a, a legitimacy to the authority that we must know or, or recognize. And when we look at judges, specifically in, within a legal system, what we see is that judges to have the seat uh, as a judge, they must prove cognitive knowledge of the law and live in a way that honors that law. Now we all know, I, I guarantee you, every judge Ever has some sort of violation of the law, right? They've got a speeding ticket, they did something stupid when they are younger. There's probably some factor where we can say, hey, then they, didn't do, they didn't uphold the law perfectly, and that's the difference between a human judge and Jesus as the just judge. But wherever we see some sort of judgment, there is this, this relationship between knowledge of the law and skill or mastery of the law, which leads to some sort of credibility. And to the degree that they are able to uh, demonstrate their knowledge and the skill, they are entrusted with a proportionate degree of authority or jurisdiction. Now this is true from courtrooms to baking shows, right? When judges are sitting there on the panel and they're evaluating food, like you, you got judges who know something about baking, who have the ability to do the baking, whatever. They have this combination of knowledge and skill that comes together as credibility. So the question then, if, if Jesus is the ultimate judge, what makes him credible? Now verse, in, in Acts chapter 10, we're told that God has appointed him. That God looks at Jesus and says, boom, he is seated on the throne. And you're like, what is that? What is this? Like, is this some sort of cosmic nepotism, right? If God, this is God's son, oh yeah, my son, he's next in line. Uh, my five-year-old Kuiper, like every Sunday he comes up to me and says, Dad, I want to tell the people something. And it's really cute because, you know, it makes me kind of proud. He's like, I want to tell the people something at church. It's like, okay, well, what do you want to tell them? And it's usually it's some sort of Bible verse that they're working on at school or whatever. But listen, here's the deal. I'm not going to just, like, give my kid a microphone. That's going to go poorly, right? 
I'm not gonna, oh yeah, he's a pastor's kid, so he must have something good. No, that's not necessarily how it goes. It's not some sort of nepotism. See, if we're going off of this knowledge plus skill equals credibility paradigm, Jesus shows us that he is worthy of being judged because he's a master of God's law. Yes, he is God's son, but the characteristic or, or the label that Jesus gives himself at the beginning of, of our passage in Matthew 25, verse 31, is that he is the son of man. Now, this is significant, that Jesus sort of interchanges these, uh, the title of the Son of God and the Son of Man. Each one conveys something specific. Now, we, we would look at this, Son of God obviously conveys his divinity, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus himself is fully God, fully man. So this Son of God, the divine aspect of God, and we look at the Son of Man, and we can say, oh yeah, that must be speaking of his humanity, but that is not the extent of what the Son of Man means. When we look at the, this language that Jesus uses, the Son of Man, it, it's, it's a reference to something that Daniel sees in the seventh chapter of his book. Daniel receives this vision of one who appeared in glory like the Son of Man who ascends to power. He ascends to the throne, to the the seat of the Ancient of Days. And he does this as a victor, as someone who has conquered, who who has triumphed, who has executed perfectly to get to that spot. And this is what we see with Jesus. That Jesus was a master of God's law, not by default, but he grew in it. In Matthew, in his gospel, he talks about how Jesus knew the law inside and out. That that even as a child, when Jesus went to the temple and he taught or when he unpacked the scriptures, he did so in a way that had authority. That, That the Pharisees, the other teachers looked at, well, what is going on? This kid has an uncanny, a canony, uncanny ability to unpack the word of God. They were astonished at him. And Jesus in Matthew 22, he sums up the entirety of God's law. The, the Pharisees are trying to, talk, to trick him. Like, what, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, love God with all your all. That, that's, 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 the law summarizes. He says, the law and the prophets are, are hung on these two things. It's to love God with all your all. And the second thing is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And here Jesus shows mastery in that he had cognitive knowledge of the law, but not just that, he had the skill, he owned it. He lived it out. Matthew 5, 18 tells us that Jesus came to fulfill the law in a way that there's not one dot or iota of the law that is missed, that Jesus fully lived in to all of the requirements of the law, that if Jesus were to get a grade on how he lived his life, he would get an A plus, 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 plus. See, Jesus himself is the gold standard. See, that's what qualifies Jesus to be our judge. He embodies. He he is a definition of righteousness. And when we stand before Jesus, that is what we're judged by. We stand there and we are evaluated on the basis of our deeds. Side-by-side comparison of my life and Jesus' life. And it won't take you long to figure out We ain't measuring up, folks. 
There's a lot that we've left undone and a lot of things that have been sinful that we have done. We are judged, we're evaluated on the basis of our deeds and that is, that's clear in Matthew 25 verses 36 and through 37 and verses 42 and 43. Judgment is based on what you did or didn't do. Take a, take a look. The king will say to those on his right, this is verse 34, come you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom of God prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So all these things are, are, are works, they're deeds, they're things that we have done or haven't done. And I realize to say that we're judged and evaluated on the basis of our deeds, this sounds very different than most of the sermons that I preach. Right, because what's the gospel? That we're, we're not saved by our works, we're saved by the grace of God. Right, Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, it's not your own doing, it's not by works of man, so that no one may boast. Am I I being contradictory here? Is scripture being contradictory here? Now, it might seem that way, but but what we see, scripture is operating within a biblical tension, and not in a way that, that pushes us toward legalism or moralism, where we operate by checking the boxes nor is it based on a faith that is stationary. Jesus is saying, and, and what all of Scripture tells us is that there's a nuanced interplay between faith and work. That, that, that if you have faith, you will have works that accompany that. That, that God, in, in saving us, has predestined us, who has prepared for us good works to do before the foundation of the world. So just as you have been saved and your, your salvation was planned, the works that God has prepared for you to do have been planned as well. Now what's being judged here in Matthew 25, right, being, being evaluated by our deeds, Jesus is judging us on the trueness or the genuineness of our faith. He's saying that the sheep, those who, who did these things, they have a working a growing and alive faith, a faith that propels them to do what has been prepared for beforehand. Right? James talks about this in his, in his epistle. Faith without works is dead. I'll show you my faith by my works. Therefore, the, the goats who are condemned, they're the ones who, who don't have a, a living faith. They're the ones who don't have anything to show for their faith. There's no proof of their faith. There's no no life in their faith. Thus, their faith without works is dead. You see, we have to understand that faith in Jesus is more than just a get out of hell free card. See, what faith in Jesus leads us to is in a, a vibrant relationship with Jesus where our faith is so much in him that his life is spilling out of us, that we start looking like him. Now, this is the tension here because I say all this, that we're judged by our deeds, that God is going to evaluate us on what we have done and what we have left undone. 
But no, make no mistake here, you cannot work or perform your way into being a sheep of Jesus' flock. You can't do it, it's impossible. You can try to get busy by checking the boxes. You can try to be better. You can try to be more acceptable, to prove your worth. But a true sheep knows that that's impossible. It's a futile effort that even on your very best day, you still miss the mark. only when you've come to the end of yourself and you realize, man, I'm in trouble. If this is riding on me, if my future is riding on me, I'm in trouble. And if that's where you're at, if you have this realization, this is a sweet spot to be. Because it's in this place where we're at the end of ourselves. It's the most opportune place where Jesus steps in and calls us to trust in him, not in our own works, but in what he has done. See, the way you become a sheep of his pasture is by hearing the voice of the shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They hear me. Now, what this speaks to is is that God has supernaturally unblocked our ears in a way that we could actually hear and respond in faith to Jesus as he calls And as we hear, we would believe, and in believing, we would have life, which is the reward that Jesus is offering those who are his sheep. So the question is then, what do I believe? What do I need to believe in order to be justified? Well, you've got to believe that Jesus is the judge. Not just that he's the judge who will come back and judge us justly, but he's the judge who came down from his throne, who lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, who was judged in your place, condemned to die a sinner's death. He was cursed. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. The curse uh, uh, we see of the goats. Jesus experienced that himself, that he was cast away from the Father, separated, which, by the way, that is the true agony of hell. We think of hell and we think of the fire and the misery. Like, That's probably just a metaphor for something worse. The separation from God is what is the most painful part of this. And here, Jesus stepped into this and he absorbed the wrath of God that your sin had earned for you. He took your punishment that we deserve because we just don't measure up. And then by the Spirit, Jesus was vindicated. Now that means that Jesus didn't stay dead. That means that our sins didn't keep Jesus in the grave. That as the Son of Man who ascended in triumph defeated sin and death, he split it in half. He was justified by the Spirit and restored to glory, ascended to the Father at his right hand. And because Jesus was justified in what he did, that he went to the cross, he paid the price, he was justified, God looked at him and said, this is payment, I've received it in full for the sins of my people. 
That means that if our faith is in Jesus, that we too are justified with him. Justification is a legal word. It, it's, this, it's this word that means because of what Jesus did, we are declared innocent, not guilty. We've been pardoned of the sentence, the penalty, the punishment of our sin. But more than that, all of the stuff that we see in Matthew 25, that this life that, that we receive, that we gather, that we are blessed by the Father to inherit the kingdom of God, we receive this by faith. What, what Jesus earned, we receive. And so when you go back and look at Matthew 25, when we see like the criteria of, of what we're judged by, you can't help but realize that Jesus is the one who did all of the stuff already. Do you, do you see this? Jesus is the one who feeds us. He says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus is the living water who quenches our thirst. Jesus is the one who freed the captives. He didn't just visit the captives and say, hey, what's up? Give them a high five. He freed those who are captive by sin. He's the great physician who showed up, who healed us of our sin sickness. And here he covers our shameful nakedness with his own righteousness. See, this is what we have faith in, that Jesus is the one who did this perfectly for us, and he gives it to us as a gift. And because of his righteousness, it is now ours, and we have access to this reward. We come alive. We have a new beginning. We live with him forever, starting now. And when you have faith in Jesus, that he's the one who did this for us, that faith comes alive. That, that faith is now demonstrated in the way that you live. From this faith in Jesus is born a new life that evidences that you are following your shepherd. And this is expressed by growth. Right? Living things grow. Growth in character. Growth in holiness. Growth in the fruit of the Spirit. that your heart is growing closer and closer to Jesus. See, these are the works, the fruits of a, of a faith that is genuine. Tim Keller says that, that our deeds are an index to our heart. Our, our deeds are an index to our heart. Just like an index will, at the front of a book will tell you what's in the book, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't provide all of the words to the book. It doesn't tell you the entirety of what's in the book. The index merely points to what is there already. Or in another way to put it is that the fruit on the tree doesn't produce life itself, but the fruit on the tree demonstrates that there is life. It shows that life is at play. And so this tells us that you cannot work to justify yourself before God but your works are evidence that you have already been justified. Now, as a pastor, I've, I have, oftentimes I have, I have dialogues with people that express doubts of if they really have a genuine faith, if they're really Christians, and, and they want me to like, 
look at my magic ball and tell, oh yeah, yeah. But listen, only thing God knows. But here's the assurance that we have. That if you have a living, genuine, vibrant faith, you will have places in your life where you can point to and say, that's a fruit of my faith. So you can ask yourself, are, are you growing year over year? Are, are you more patient than you were last year? Are you more generous? Are you more thankful than you were last week or the month before? And really it helps the further out you step to see the progress, right? Because right when you're in the thick of it, sometimes it feels, man, I've been in this spot for what feels like years. But really there's fruit there. Do you long to hear the shepherd's voice through his word? Are you growing as a missionary? Are you living as a faithful servant to your master? See, we're not saved by any of these things, but your faith is revealed by them. Now, one way your faith manifests is by the relinquishing of your role as judge. That's one thing that we just naturally gravitate toward. Like, we want to be our own judge. We want to have the power, the ability to, to assess life, to assess the world, and offer our own verdict. And really, we see this played out in culture a lot. Where culture, whether it's media or social media or whatever, is trying to make some sort of assessment, some sort of judgment upon whatever. One of the best examples that I can think of in recent times is Carson King, right? This young guy raises money for the University of Iowa Hospital, doing this great thing, and then all of a sudden it comes out that he said something really stupid, which was stupid back, you know, maybe when he was 16, and now all of a sudden, like we're supposed to look at what he's doing and say this isn't good, to, to, condemn, it, to condemn him. And that's just so much of what our culture is. To, and we do this because we want to assert our own importance. It draws the attention away from our own flaws and points the finger at somebody else. But Jesus says that if you judge, if you look at others and judge, you too will be judged. Right? Which is ironic because... <laughs> The guy who published this stuff that was wrong with Carson King had his own dirty laundry that got aired out. Now this doesn't mean, you know, like we don't judge or we don't have any sort of accountability to say, hey brother, it seems as if you're out of step with the gospel because we see a lot of biblical evidence for that conversation happening in Galatians. When Paul uh, approaches Peter, it doesn't mean no accountability, it doesn't mean that we don't have some sort of standard for discipleship but it means that we don't play along with the culture that's trying to get us to play the role of judge and jury because Jesus is the one who judges. And this also happens on a smaller scale, not just at the culture at large, but, but in our own lives when we're evaluating and we're interacting with other people. We have this tendency to, to judge people uh, within our relationships and say, does this person meet my standards? Are they worthy of my time? And so we're constantly sizing people up. Are they good enough for me? Have you proved yourself? What do they have to offer? And if that's how you operate, right, your relationships are probably gonna be few. You're not gonna have a lot of relationships because the standard, whatever standard that is, is gonna be so high and so delusional that you think that only you can meet it and a select group of people can. And then those people who happen to meet that standard are probably gonna be just like you anyway. See, if we do that, we have deflated relationships. 
When we see people who are different from us, when we see the prisoner, when we see the person who's sick, the person who's hungry, the person who's thirsty, we don't move toward them when we're acting as a judge. We push away from them. So when we see Jesus as the judge, it frees us from this ability uh, or this, this desire that we have to be the judge and to assert our judgment on other people. And when we start to see that Jesus is the judge and we see the way he judged us, it frees us because we realize that we have been unworthy. Jesus looked at us and we're unworthy and he moved toward us. And so therefore we move toward other people. Now the last way, if Jesus is judge, it means that we don't have to keep trying to prove ourselves. My story is, I'm an Enneagram one. I find a lot of value in being right and sort of having this idea of a standard. And for so much of my life, I felt this drive that I had to assert my value, I had to prove my worth, I had to justify myself in the things that really were insignificant when you compare the things that I had to make up for. And I feel like there's a lot of people who fit that mold, who, who feel like I'm trying to justify myself, day in, prove myself through my work, through my relationships, what I accomplished. And so in a sense, we are looking to ourselves, we're trusting ourselves for our justification. And when you're trusting yourself, you're not trusting Jesus. In order to accept the verdict of Jesus, when he looks at us and, and approves of us in faith has the sheep Faith allows us to accept that and say, you know what, I don't have to, Jesus has done this for me. It allows us, faith allows us to embrace that we are accepted by God just as we are and by his grace and his love, we are loved to, his, to our best. As we come to the Lord's table, we see there are three things to celebrate, and I'll break it down in tenses. There's past, present, future tense. There's things that we ought to celebrate and rejoice in as we think about Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead. First of all, we look at the table and we see that we have been justified, that Jesus was already judged. His body was broken, his blood was shed. That Jesus was broken under the wrath of God so that we could be mended and preserved. And because Jesus had been judged, there's no reason for Christians to fear judgment anymore. We, we look at the future day and we, we're not scared. Right? If you look at the future day and you're worried about judgment, you're forgetting the gospel that it's all been dealt with. Jesus said it is finished. You have been justified. That's the past tense. We have been justified. The second is that this feast, this meal, points us forward to a wedding banquet of what will be. The day when Jesus comes and sets everything right, where this world will be restored and perfected. But the only way to have this kingdom, the only way to have this righteous world, is if we embrace Jesus as king and judge. So it points forward to what will be. And lastly, this meal itself, we are being nourished and sustained to be faithful to our mission. You see, the good works that Jesus has prepared for us before the foundations of the world, this meal helps us live into those. 
It gives us the nourishment, the sustenance to step into those things, to say, hey, this is my faith. This is what I believe that Jesus has done this, and because he has done this, this allows me to live in such a way that shows the fruit of my faith. And the more we feast on Jesus, the more we remember the gospel and what he has done to justify us, the more we have this missional angst. Because if you really love people, if you love your friends, your neighbors, coworkers, you will want them to know Jesus as judge, not on the negative side of things where they will be judged, where they'll experience the condemnation and be pushed out as good, but you want them to know what it's like to be embraced as one of God's own. So this is what compels us. This meal sustains us and nourishes us for this word, to be a good and faithful servant. So when Jesus appears again, he looks and he evaluates us and he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is our hope. This is what the gospel provides for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you have come first to save us, not to condemn us, but to save us, to offer us, to offer us new life. And we know that a person is not just, this is Galatians 2, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. And it's by that faith that we are saved. And we believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is the promise of salvation, but God, as we are saved people, as people who have experienced a vibrant faith, you compel us, you push us out on mission to be faithful to the good works of proclaiming Christ and doing good in our city. And I pray that, God, this meal would point us forward to the reality we have been justified, that one day this world will be set right, that perfect righteousness will rule, that justice will flow like a river, and, God, that this meal sustains us for the work of proclaiming that day. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.